Thank you for checking out the very first episode of Arn right here on Westwood One. We appreciate your support and we hope that you'll hit the subscribe button and tell your friends about the brand new show Arn every Tuesday at 6 a.m. right here on Westwood One. You'll eventually be able to find this podcast anywhere you enjoy your podcasts, whether it's Apple, Spotify, anywhere in between. But don't forget, you can always tell your friends to check us out online at arnshow.com. That's A R N S H O W.com. Arnshow.com every Tuesday at 6 a.m. And if you'd like to advertise your product or service on this show, send us an email. Hey, hey, advertising at gmail.com is our main man, Dave Green. And another way to support the show is to pick up a shirt right now at orangeshirts.com. That's orangeshirts.com, A-R-N-S-H-I-R-T-S.com. And don't forget, for a limited time only, whenever you pick up a shirt at orangeshirts.com, Arn will call and personally thank you for your order. We hope you enjoy this very first episode of Arn, where we explore the territory days and stay tuned next week where we'll examine when Arn left Jim Crockett promotions for the world wrestling federation back in 1988. If you've got a question about that show, throw us a follow right now on Twitter at the Arn show. That's at the Arn show. But as always, the best way to support the show is just to hit the subscribe button and tell a friend about arnshow.com. Thank you again for your continued support. And without further ado, let's get this show on the road. and you're listening to Arn with the enforcer ladies and gentlemen i can't believe this is actually happening mr arn anderson arn how's it going man how are you well i am fantastic i'm excited i'm also sitting in front of a lot of technology that's got me bamboozled but other than that <laughs> we're going to figure this out between the two of us and have a great time with this i'm sure well i'm looking forward to it you know uh wrestling fans have wanted to hear from you for a long time and you're one of the, uh, the last of the Mohicans, man, as old school as it gets. And, uh, you're finally ready to tell some stories from the good old days. Are you nervous, anxious, excited? I'm excited. I don't, I'm not really nervous. I just would like for everybody out there to bear with me. This is the first time I've done anything of this nature and it's unlike anything I've ever done. So we'll get through this together and hopefully have a good time as I get a little more relaxed. Well, I'm sure we're going to have a great time. We appreciate everyone joining us today here on Westwood one. Arn is going to be coming to you every Tuesday morning at 6 AM. And we appreciate you joining us for this journey. If you'd like to participate in the show, follow us on Twitter. I can't believe this is real, but there is actually an Arn Anderson Twitter. It's at the Arn Show. Throw us a follow there, and uh, you'll see topics pop up, and you'll have an opportunity to ask questions. And believe it or not, Arn, we have our very first shirt. It says "Arrive, Spawnbuster, Leave." That sounds familiar, huh? Love it. Absolutely love it. Um, yeah, it sounds like the way to go. Don't hang around to see what the damage was. <laughs> Get that spine buster in and beat it. You got it. Check it out right now. You can uh, see the shirt and, uh, I think you're going to dig it. It's at the Arn show and stay tuned. I'm sure we'll have more shirts there, but 
let's get started with the show, man. This is our first episode of Arn, and I feel it's probably most appropriate. We just start at the actual beginning, you know, whether or not you grew up a wrestling fan, how you broke in, how your training went, and then we'll cover some of your travels through the territories. And as we all know, you're going to land in Jim Crockett promotions. So we'll cut it off there today because I think most of our listeners probably became familiar with your work for the first time at Jim Crockett promotions and stay tuned next week. We'll have sort of the other bookend of the Jim Crockett story. We'll cover when you and Tully left JCP for the WWF. Uh, but for now let's, let's start at the beginning. Did you grow up a wrestling fan? Well, I guess about eight years old is, is my earliest recollection of, of seeing wrestling on TV. And it was where I grew up, Rome, Georgia. We got the Chattanooga, which I think was the Nick's Nick Goulas, um, product back in those days. And, uh, I just remember Ed Caprol was the voice of that show. And, uh, man, I was hooked as soon as I saw it. I was absolutely hooked. Even as a kid that small, I just, I was just flabbergasted by it it just had me mesmerized when did you or did you ever have a chance to see wrestling from the new york territory what was probably at the time the wwwf uh we didn't get that programming uh as a kid as i was growing up um like i said we got the chattanooga and then we later on we got georgia championship wrestling i didn't have a chance to see that other than what i you know pick up a magazine at a store and uh see it it was kind of foreign to me, but it still wrestling was wrestling. I loved all of it. Well, these days there's a performance center and there's a variety of different ways to sort of break into the big time of professional wrestling. What was it like for you? You know, back then it was a much different industry, much harder to break into very secretive sort of underground. How did you uh, manage to find a spot in the biz? Well, you know, I was always like, even as a kid, you know, eight years old, I would call my best friend, Bob Moss, who lived up on the hill, you know, in the wealthy section of the neighborhood. Um, and I would say, you got to get down here, get down here, get down here, hurry. I got to show you this. He'd hang up the phone and come running down. Now I'm eight years old. I got on my whitey tidy underwear. I got on a face mask toboggan and I got a shoestring down on my underwear hiding by the door. When he busted in the door, I pulled out the, the shoestring and I choked him out. So even then, <laughs> I was a complete rogue of the neighborhood. So, uh, you know, other guys, if they liked wrestling, they didn't admit to it. Uh, I admitted to it constantly. I loved it. So, you know, I just knew that everyone I talked to as I got older, they would just say, well, there's no way you can get in that. I mean, that's, we don't even know anybody, you know, and, uh, being an athlete and, and, uh, my whole life, I'm thinking, God almighty, I just wish, I wish, I wish I could do that. But I just knew it was a closed door. Uh, even then, I mean, it wasn't even that you could meet anybody that had ever heard of meeting anybody that knew how to get in. It was that far detached. So uh, eventually you get that opportunity, but before you do, you mentioned a minute ago that you had sort of grown up an athlete. What sports did you play growing up? Well, I wrestled and I played football. I played baseball up until I got to high school, which was my favorite sport, baseball. But uh, once you got to high school and you played football, you either had to have a second sport that was either wrestling or track or basketball. Baseball didn't count. If you wanted to play baseball in the spring, too, that would be a third sport. And that was just too much. So I dropped baseball. Uh, I was going to be a lineman. 
and a linebacker playing football. So they decided, they being the coaching staff, that I would wrestle and uh, had some limited success, you know, as an amateur wrestler. Football, same thing. I did play with uh, my senior year in high school at East Strong, Ray Donaldson, who went on to be the center for the University of Georgia and played on that national championship team. Ray and I were very good friends. Uh, and then he went on to enjoy about a 12 to 14 year uh, NFL career, uh, all pro with the Indianapolis Colts. So uh, that was kind of my claim to fame um, as far as that went. Uh, but I was just just good enough to be a pretty good player on my team, one of the better players on a high school team, but not good enough to go to college. So after high school, you're probably trying to figure out, Hey, where are we going to wind up with this thing? And, and somehow you wind up training with a guy named Ted Lipscomb. Is that right? That's exactly right. And it, again, it was a freak thing. Um, I went to the stadium every day after I get through lifting weights and, uh, I'd go run a little bit, run a, you know, mile, mile and a half, something just to say I did was at the stadium that uh, I played high school football. And also that was where the building sat that, uh, wrestling came to about every two or three Thursdays, Georgia championship would run a live event there in Rome. Um, and I would go. And, uh, this particular time, the timing was I was getting in my car to leave. Ted Allen was pulling in. I recognized him immediately off the television. And, um, I just kind of hung out there till he got out of his car and got his bag out. I just kind of sauntered over to him very respectfully. Um, I just said, you know, hello, my name's Marty Lundy. I, you know, I love what you do. I've been watching you for years and years since I was a kid. And God, what would somebody like me do to get in your business? And I should have seen it coming. In those days, a guy, a wrestler that was already in would have said something along the lines of, you can't get in and probably backhanded me. But Ted didn't. He was he was a gentleman. He just started asking me about myself. I couldn't believe it. We were actually having a conversation. He uh, he then said, you know, if you got uh, 500 bucks, I'll train you. I, I was floating by this particular time. I, I didn't believe him, but he gave me his phone number, said, give me a call tomorrow and we'll go forward. Well, I didn't sleep any that night, obviously. I called him the next day and he said, yep, we got to locate a ring somewhere and uh, and we'll get you started. Let me do some research. Well... He called me back a couple days. He said, I'm having a problem finding a ring. I told a friend of mine working out, I'm this close to getting something. I just, they can't locate a ring. He said, let me talk to my dad, Jerry Hicks, who owned Jerry Hicks Furniture Store. Called me that night. He said, well, son, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this Ted Allen. He said, I didn't have a dad growing up, and I know you didn't either. I know you're at a cusp right now of needing somebody to help you with a break here he says so we're going to locate you a ring and i tell you what i'm going to do i'm going to put it up in the back of my uh, furniture store so you'll have a place to train you don't have to worry about paying rent and all that stuff wow. so jerry jerry hicks was is probably as important to me getting in the business as anybody else Wow. I, I never heard that story. That's, that's pretty unbelievable. So you start a, a training regimen there of sorts. 
What's that look like? How, I mean, how often are you there? Is it a weekly thing, a daily thing? What's that look like? Well, it's uh, Tony Zane, a friend of mine, wanted to break in, which he did. And David McGee, another guy, wanted to break in. So we did. So we were bouncing each other around. And the, the very first day, I'll never forget it, Ted, in those days, the veterans would get guys that thought they wanted to break in the business but really didn't, and they'd get them in, they'd rough them up. Well, Ted didn't beat us up, probably because he was, I'm not 100% sure he could get away with it, number one. But number two, he was just that kind of guy. But he did slam the piss out of us, day one. (laughs) And, buddy, (laughs) if you've never been slammed, I sat up and thought to myself, I'll never forget it. It's like, oh, my God. What have I signed up for? Um, Very, very, very much a wake-up call. Um, So, Ted, you know, just by watching it, I mean, I could kind of do an arm drag. I could kind of do a headlock takeover. And some of the fundamentals just from watching week, week, week after week after week after week. And he started us at rock bottom. And uh, we were working out probably three days a week because Ted was still on the road. He was going back and forth to Memphis wrestling a full-time job uh, with their company. Um, So he only had a couple, three days that he could spend with us. And and he did. And uh, must have been four or five weeks before we got to actually go somewhere and wrestle, which is some small towns in Alabama. So talk to me about what your life looks like at that point. You've dedicated your life to wrestling here a few days a week, but are you also trying to hold down another job somewhere else? Are you all in on wrestling and just scraping by at this point? No, wrestling was just a a wish and a dream and a pipe dream at the very, very best. I was still cutting meat in the grocery store from three o'clock in the morning until about one o'clock in the afternoon, a place called warehouse groceries. You being an Alabama oh, yeah. re- resident, you should know about warehouse groceries. And it was, you know, for Rome, it was a really good, stable job. I worked my way up from just unloading trucks and grinding hamburger meat up to being the. In a few years, I had, you know, a position as assistant market manager, which most people in the in Rome, Georgia, would have been just content to have that as a career and went on and let it take them to the next level, which would have been market manager. And it was good living, it was respectable living and, and all that stuff. Problem with that is I didn't want to be a market manager. Right. I want to be a, re- I want to be a wrestler. And, uh, Arn, in your uh, training, what was the hardest thing for you to get down pat? Well, everything was hard. <clears throat> You're starting from scratch. But thank God in those days, it was, uh, you would learn your fundamentals, which was headlock takeover, arm drag, all that stuff. First, you had to. You had to, you know, be able to give a hip toss, take a hip toss. You know, the bigger moves were reserved to be finishes. You know, a, a suplex was a finish. You know, a belly-to-belly suplex was a finish. Right. Uh, Crossbody off the top rope was a finish. So you kind of left that stuff till later in your training. And thank God, to this day, I have not attempted or executed a drop kick. (laughs) I don't think I ever noticed that. Why is that? Just not your thing? Lack of interest. (laughs) I don't know why that's funny, but it is. 
Well, because <laughs> there's nothing funnier than somebody trying to drop kick who is not well versed in that because it looks god awful. And uh, and I'll give you the example. Uh, one of the greatest performers and most over guys in the history of the business, I think everyone would concur, is Stone Cold Steve Austin, right. who has got the most rotten drop kick that ever was. <laughs> Well, you were mentioning, uh, some these days, what would be considered a rather common move, but back then, uh, those were finishing maneuvers when you're first starting your training, you know, I mean, obviously as a young guy coming up, you're probably not expecting to win a bunch of matches, but did you have a finisher in mind? Absolutely not. I knew it would not come up. Um, and it, and it didn't. Uh, actually it was until the, like the last month or two of working for Bill Watts that I came up with the gourd buster, which was not used as a finish as I did not win the match, but I was wrestling with Tim Horner and I said, you know, I've got an idea of this, this move in my head. If you don't mind me trying it. And I don't remember what the town was or what the day of the week was, but I was just, in my mind, I pictured going up for a vertical suplex, and instead of dropping the guy on the back, on his back, and me going down with him, I would drop him straight down. And so that's where that move, that was the first power move that belonged to me that I came up with and uh, started to use later on when I actually was going to win a match or two. Do you remember who your first match was with? I want to say Ted Allen. Wow. He, he took us down to, again, one of those small Alabama towns, and he needed an opponent. Um, and I got to wrestle Ted once or twice. Pat Rose, who's a veteran who's been around a long time, I wrestled him uh, a time or two. Uh, that's the two names that stand out. Pat Rose, by the way, uh, still around today doing uh, a fishing radio show out of Chattanooga. So if you're in that area, check it out. I think it's syndicated in a few different markets too. I think it's on the hook with Pat Rose or off the hook with Pat Rose, but good guy. Go out of your way to uh, check him out. If you're into fishing and in that part of the country, which leads you to after getting booked a couple, three times and Boaz, Alabama, small towns like that, just local promoters that ran every week, um, Albertville, Alabama, I, I got booked, Ted booked us on, uh, Atlanta TV and I, the luck of the draw, I got Bob and Brad Armstrong. Oh my gosh. And you're talking about class acts, pleasures to meet as human beings and incredible performers. That's what they were. Um, Myself and a gentleman named Deke Rivers. I don't know if how well Deke Rivers is known, but uh, we worked a tag match, and I got in there, and I actually got to do a little bit with Bob and Brad. And um, when the match was over, we went backstage, and they said, uh, Bob looks at me, and he goes, thank you very much. How long have you been working? And I said, well, I've had uh, three matches. Three matches. Jeez. So I think you got some potential. Um, we're just here doing television. We're going to go back to Pensacola. I'm going uh, have part ownership in that company down there. And uh, I'm, I'm booking and I'm working down there. And uh, we'd like to use you for about three weeks. Can you come down? Do you have a job? I said, uh, yes, sir, I do have a job. And he says, oh, well, you probably don't want to mess that up because I, I can only use you for three weeks. I said, <clears throat> 
I just resigned. <laughs> well, he, he couldn't believe it, but uh, I sure could. And it was really foolish to do at that particular time. But I went in, I worked a notice, two-week notice with my job, um, cutting meat. And then I went down for Bob and a true to his word, three weeks. He says, uh, so what are you going to go now? Do, you know, what are you going to do now? Are you going to go back? You know, get your job back. What are you going to do? I said, no, sir, I'd like to pursue this any way I can. If appreciate you using me, I'll just, I guess I'll go back and, uh, you know, continue working out and see what happens. He says, well, let me do this. Let me call Bill Watts, see about uh, you doing television. That'd be phenomenal. So he called. He said, yep, go home. Week after next, drive out to uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, and he can use you for two days of TV. So I went all the way home, got my stuff together a little bit, went back to uh, Bill Watts in two weeks, and he used me for the two televisions. He said, you want a job? I said, absolutely, sir. He said, okay, go home, get your clothes and come back. And I went back and I was there for five months. Okay, all right. I got to tell you, this is my favorite part of the show. I've uh, joked about this with Tony Schiavone and Eric Bischoff and Bruce Pritchard and Jim Ross. I don't know that you have heard about this, but. I have a sponsor for every one of my podcasts, and I know you saw it at the StarCast Green Room. Blue Chew is our first official sponsor. When did you first hear about Blue Chew, Lauren? Kevin Sullivan told me about Blue Chew. I'm a brother. They have this new thing out. Oh, my God. To take one of these gimmicks, I was running around the hotel room beating my gimmick off of the wall. I can't <laughs> believe it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I can't believe it, but Arn Anderson talking about Blue Chew, tell a friend. And while you're at it, tell a friend about Blue Chew. It's not just something for guys like the devil. It's not just something for Kevin Sullivan. It's for guys who want a little performance enhancement in the bedroom. If you're looking to go a few extra rounds, maybe last a little longer, just go to bluechew.com. You'll be hooked up with an online physician who's going to help you find the right dosage and the right active ingredient. And they have both the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. So you know these things work, but because they're chewable, they can work faster, often up to twice as fast. You can even take them on an empty stomach. But the best part about this deal, no awkward conversation. You don't have to go to an in-person doctor's visit. You don't have to wait in line at the pharmacy. It shows up in a discreet package to your front door, and it's made right here in the USA. So why wouldn't you try it? And just because you listen to this show, we're going to give you a great deal. Your first shipment, it's absolutely free. All you've got to do is pay for the postage. It's just five bucks. Check it out right now. Go to bluechew.com and use our promo code ARN. You know how to spell that A R N. But how do you spell a good time? Bluechew.com. That's B L U E C H E W.com. And uh, we're going to find a fun way to transition and talk about how ARN's been busting spines long before Blue Chew next week. Let me ask you, when, when you uh, quit your job cutting meat in Rome and go to Pensacola, what's mom say what when you it? come home and break the news that, hey, mom, uh, I'm out of here. No more Rome, Georgia for me. I'm going to Pensacola and I quit my job. Well, there was no mom or no dad. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize that. My apologies. Don't apologize because here's where the good news comes in. My grandparents raised me. And uh, my grandfather was a barber, grandmother was a housewife, and uh, my mom was one of those folks that really had a hard time figuring out what 
she wanted to do with her life. So she figured getting married four or five times was the answer. Um, and a lot of those were bad choices. Um, abusive to her, abusive to me. Um, and uh, so my grandparents took me in and raised me. And when I did come home, um, getting past that little bit of a firestorm, when I did come home and let her know, she panicked. Sure. She said, she said, son, you just quit one of the best jobs that you could have as far as stability. People right. are always going to eat. People are always going to need meat, right? I said, well, Granny, that's under the bridge, and that's not what I want to do. And and if you'll just trust me and believe in me, I believe I can do this. I really do. And I did from day one, from when I was a kid, eight years old. I knew I could do this, and I'd only do it, but I felt like, well, taking this the wrong way, I felt like I, I could do it well. Right. And uh, I was already leaning towards the bad guys, you know. When you first start watching as a kid, it's just exciting. You don't realize until you get a little older. And as I got 15, 16, 17, I started watching a little closer. And I watched Dick Slater and I watched Bob Orton Jr. as a team. Gary Hart was their manager. <clears throat> and I started watching those guys and I went, hey, wait a minute. These guys are the ones creating all the excitement. They're the ones creating all the emotion in this match. And I started to watch it from a different perspective. Um in that situation. So that's kind of skipping ahead from where we were. But anyway, my grandmother panicked. I promised her I could do this. It took a little time, but, uh, after going to Bill Watts for five months, I did get my first break and it looked like I was going to be able to be true to my word on making it. When you were working the, uh, the indie shots, uh, you know, in Albert Wool and Boaz, the small shows there, what name were you using? As a performer, myself, okay, Marty Lundy, and same same when you were on Georgia TV with the Armstrongs. Nope, they gave me some goofy name. It was like Jimmy Verderoso or something like that. Some goofy name, and and there might have been one, been once or twice that uh, I did use my legal name. I'm I'm not really sure. I can't remember that far back. I was just so thrilled to be there, but I know. One time they did give me a, a goofy name like Jimmy Verderoso or something. Um, funny thing, before we get past the Boaz and the Albertvilles, and most people won't believe this, and you tell these kids this that are breaking into business now, that are walking in and immediately are put under contract or being paid to learn how to wrestle and all that stuff. <clears throat> I've actually got paid off in hot dogs. <laughs> Was the uh, was the promoter in Boaz named Mickey? He certainly was. Wow, what a small world! Yeah, yeah I, uh, absolutely. And hey, you know, he said, uh, "Listen, I can't pay you, even though I just had one of my guys pound the piss out of you." He said, "I can't pay you. House is down, standard fare, right?" He said, "But I know you got to eat." So here's, and he handed me three hot dogs. Well, hey, I took them and I ate them on the way home. The fact is it cost me 50 bucks in gas to drive down there and back. So, but that's the way things were the old days. I would have wrestled for no hot dogs, no payoff whatsoever. It's, it's how things were done back in the day. And, uh, if you could have an opportunity of, to just get seen and have somebody walk over to you and go, Hey, that was terrible, but you did do this one thing that was pretty good. You could take that advice 
if you had the right you know mentality and uh, use it to your benefit because if somebody came across a room that had never met me before and took the time to say hey you stunk but this one thing was pretty good that was very valuable information in my mind it's just fascinating to me. I, uh, I don't know that we've ever talked about this, but I grew up in Gunnersville, which is right next to Albert Wool and Boaz. So I actually saw independent wrestling at the 431 sports arena. And the promoter there is a fellow named Mickey Henry. And, uh, his wrestling name was the hammer, Mickey, the hammer Henry. And he's still promoting wrestling in 2019, which I can't believe is, uh, still happening. So there you go, boys and girls. Well, and Hey, I was floating around there in 1982 sometime. So talk to me a little bit about how super Olympia became a thing in my research. I found that you used another name and I I can't believe this is real. You wore a mask and called yourself super Olympia. How does that come together? I certainly did. Um, so after Bob Armstrong, uh, used me for the three weeks, then I went to Bill Watts where here's a chapter that, that will lead us to Mr. Olympia. During that period of five months that I worked with Bill Watts, I got to work with Tim Horner and Kelly Kaniski and a couple of guys that, you know, we would go out there, first match every single night, no punching, no kicking. Now these are the rules laid down by Bill Watts. 20-minute Broadway, which means 20 minutes through the time limit, time limit draw. If you're limited and couldn't punch or kick, you better learn how to wrestle. Right. Uh, because, because that's all it, that it leaves. Um so I got my fundamentals in place during that time. We get towards the end of, I know time is running out. We're about the fifth month and there's a little TV meeting and Matt Bourne, who was working on top with Bill Watts, Ted DiBiase and uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, along with Matt Bourne, were called the Rat Pack. And they were the top hills in the territory. It's time for Matt, who had been there quite a while, to leave. They were going to send him to Atlanta with a manager, Paul Ellering, and they were searching for a partner for Matt. And Junkyard Dog, just out of the blue, God bless him, looks at Bill, and I'm just sitting over in the corner of the locker room. I just happen to be in the geographical area of this. Just a fluke deal. But I was sitting over against the wall, paying, paying attention to getting my boots on, and JYD looks across and he goes, Bill, Lundy looks just like Ole Anderson. Why don't you send him with him, make him an Anderson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Bill Watts looked at me. It's like he saw me for the first time. He said, JY, you're absolutely right. I'll call Ole. Wow. Well, my, my head almost blew off, as you can imagine thinking this will never fly this again this was just one of those it was like running into ted allen times 10 next week of course i had to suffer through an entire week before i heard anything i get to tv the next week he goes you're finishing up uh along with matt in two weeks go to atlanta you'll have a spot with matt paul eller i don't know who paul ellering was at the time will be your manager and uh, you're welcome. Fantastic. So that was a huge break, which got me on Atlanta TV. Uh, more importantly, we walk in. <clears throat> Ole asked me to, you know, to see me by myself. He talked to us individually and collectively. After those guys left the room, he said, can I see you for a minute? He went, geez, I thought they were ribbing. You do look like me. 
<laughs> so I tell you what we're going to do. You're not Marty Lundy anymore. You're going to be, mm, you're going to be Arn Anderson. I said, I, I sure as hell will. <clears throat> you can call me anything you want. Um, and just, just like that, Arn Anderson was born. Um, Ole put the gimmick on me. They put us in a really, really good spot. And uh, we started up with Georgia Championship Wrestling and uh, had about a six-month run there. Talk to me a little bit about first big crowd. Uh, I, I'm curious what when that would have happened and where that would have happened. You mentioned you know, t- taking some matches in, in the Boaz and Albertvilles of the world. Do you remember your first big crowd? I would think it would probably be working for Bob Armstrong during that three-week three um, first time, uh, I was there for the three weeks. I would imagine it would have probably been Birmingham, which would have probably looking back on it been oh five thousand 5,000 people, maybe. Wow. That's a big crowd. Yeah, I sure was. It, uh, it let me know pretty quickly that I was on the right track for wanting that as an occupation. It is just, there's nothing like coming through that curtain and uh, having that audience, you know, and in those days, if they didn't know you, they still reacted to you. If you were positioned where, let's just say the baby face came to the ring, Brad Armstrong came to the ring or Bob Armstrong, more importantly, came to the ring and then you came out, then they knew by process of elimination, you were the bad guy, even though they didn't know who you were. And it, it just made it easy to do your job. So, so 5,000 is a big crowd. Let's go to the other end. Do you have any memories of any particularly small crowds? Well, again, um, first starting, uh, those are small Alabama towns. The first few I went to, there were some hundred, hundred people. Uh, it looked like a lot to me. Uh, at that time because I was so overwhelmed, but I didn't know how to judge it or gauge it one way or the other. Um, also there, there probably was a night or two that it was 50 people, but it was, those 50 people were there, um, because they really wanted to be, and they were very passionate. I do remember that and their reaction. It didn't feel like 50 people felt, felt like a lot more. When you were talking about, you know, coming through the curtain in Birmingham and there being 5,000 people there and you felt good about your choice in that profession, do you remember little things like the first time you saw yourself on a poster for a show or in a program or on TV? Does any of that stick out? Yeah. I mean, when, uh, Ted was getting us booked, especially on Atlanta TV, we would be able to, because it was tape delayed, you would, you would, uh, tape it in the afternoon, early morning, afternoon, and they would replay it at six o'clock that night. So we could hurry back to Rome and see ourselves on TV. Um, <laughs> and buddy, we were running a hundred miles an hour up that highway. You know, it was like, we're going to be on TV tonight. I can't believe it. And then you would see yourself. And I know I did. God almighty, the, the critique would set in and you would go, damn, I do not look good. Not only that, I'm not good. And you would really critique yourself and rake yourself over the coals. I don't know what I was expecting. I didn't know if there was through some miracle of television, I was going to look like <laughs> Elvis Presley up there or something. <laughs> 
but that's not the way it came out. And it was just, I could tell, you know, how green I was and just, you know, I was not happy with anything. And, and in reality, if you were a third person looking at it from the outside, you might not have been as critical of Marty Lundy that day, but I know I was. It, it just, uh, it was amazing to see yourself on television. You never thought that would happen. And then when it happened, you went, ugh, I got to get better. I got to get tanned. I got to get some nicer gear and got probably ought to uh, establish a move set at some point. It's a big deal though, to be on TV. And you talked about her a little earlier is, is granny excited to see you on TV. This was like something she would have gathered all the neighbors around for. I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure she even watched. Wow. All right. Did you keep any of your old stuff from back then? Any old programs or posters or any, any mementos from your early days? Well, I wouldn't have made, I wouldn't have made any of those with the exception of, again, when I was at the three weeks, I keep going back to the three weeks with Bob Armstrong because that was kind of a launching pad. He brought me in. I wrestled him most of that time. And so I did make some of the local, I'm sure, like the Dothan um, program and, and, and Birmingham, some of the bigger shows, but I didn't collect any of those. I was too just focused in on, God, I'm here. I, I'm I'm here. I'm actually doing this every day. And that kind of consumed more than, hey, I got to get a program as a souvenir and all that stuff. It was just like, how can I make this last longer? How can I stretch this out? You know, I was just overwhelmed by the business. As you said uh, earlier in the territory days, you know, you would sell gimmicks as a baby face to make extra money. Explain what that means to our younger listeners and, and tell us exactly what you were selling. Well, it, it it lasted a very short time for me, <clears throat> but what was common practice, because once I got to uh, Pensacola then to start full-time, um, the baby faces would run off their own pictures, they would have their own t-shirts, they would have their own lunch boxes, any, any kind of gimmick or memento, you name it, wh- whatever you want to call it, wrestling memorabilia. They would have their own, and they would sell it, and they would get to keep their own money. And uh, in those days, <clears throat> the guys would go out before the matches, and uh, they would, you know, meet the audience, and whoever wanted to come by and buy a picture, take a picture with them, a Polaroid or whatever it was, that was a big part of their income. And uh, I started to see that because it, it spilled over into their professional outlook. They did not want to be made to look bad. They did not want to be a uh, do anything negative that would cause people to not want to buy a T-shirt or a picture. So, you know, the more I would learn about the business and the more I would watch these guys and I would see how their gimmicks, how important that was to them, you know, and it was. It was a big part of the business. And, uh, of course, it being a heel, you didn't get any of that money and nor should you. Uh, but your value to those baby faces became even more, more and more important because the more they disliked you, the more they liked them and the more gimmicks they bought. And, uh, that was just a part of the business in those days. And, uh, it turned out if you asked a guy that had a career like a Bill Dundee or a, uh, Jerry, the King Lawler or, uh, Stan Lane, Steve Kern, any of those guys that were really over as babyfaces, 
you know, if you totaled up all the money they made during their career just on their gimmicks, it was probably as much as they made wrestling. Wow. Talk to me a little bit about this, this territory lifestyle that you're living at the time, you know, not very long in, in Pensacola, but when you wind up going out and working for Watts for five months, uh, what was protocol? Were, were there, uh, uh, like wrestler apartments and a bunch of guys just sort of piled in and, and covered or, or split expenses or how does your living arrangement work when you're, you're sort of fluid? You're not really here long enough for a lease or to buy a house. You're just sort of in and out, or maybe you don't even know how long you're going to be here. Well, in those days, you would try the, the guys in, in Bill Watts territory because the drives were so long. And it was about 2,500 miles a week is what we had it broke Whoa. down to. You start averaging that, that's pretty good trips. Um, the guys tried to find the center point of the territory. So whatever town you lived in, it would utilize making back and forth to the trips because you don't want to have a hotel on top of that. You always want to get home at night. Right. Even though you're, you know, you were on the road quite a bit. So most of the guys lived in Alexandria, which was the center point of the territory. Ted DiBiase and Tim Horner lived in Baton Rouge. Well, I didn't know. I just, I drove out there and I didn't know what to do. It, it was my first territory. So I just thought, Hey, I'll fill this out. So I went out there and after about a week of just driving to the town and spending the night in a hotel, which got pretty expensive. Tim Warner came up to me and he went, Hey, Tony Anthony, <clears throat> friend of mine, he's one of the guys, one of the grapplers is leaving. He's going to Tennessee or Texas or somewhere. He was leaving to go to another territory. He says, I got a bedroom open. If you want to move in, you can just pick up uh, his half of the bills and there you go. And I think that's probably what a lot of guys did. They just would get there, find out who was on the way out or who was on the way in. And if somebody already had an apartment, he would take in one or two guys and you try to live as cheap as humanly possible because when you were underneath and you work for a territory like Bill Watts, you're looking at five, $600 a week in those days. And you're looking at spending quite a bit, uh, on, uh, gas. So they had a, it's like an unwritten law that you paid trans. If you rode with another guy in his car to the town back and forth, it was like four cents a mile you paid in trans. Mm. Yep. But it, you know, in those days it was either that, or if you want to drive your own car every day, you could get that trans money. But as I found out, I blew my car up making those trips out there loaded down with four wrestlers and bags. Wasn't very long for about three months. I blew my, blew my uh, engine out. So it was, uh, it was a lot of, a lot of hours and a lot of miles and, uh, driving back and forth to the towns, but it also gave you an opportunity if you chose to use it to pick the brain of the veterans, those that would let you, that weren't asleep in, in the car, you know? I think the old phrase that Dusty used to use is like, uh, sit under the learning tree. Who are you, whose tree were you under at this time, those five months that you're there in, in, in Watts territory? The two biggest influences would have been Tim Warner, who I was living with and nobody knew because in those days you kayfabed. Uh, he was a baby face. I was a heel. You didn't live together. That was just, you protected the business. They would have fired us if they would have known that. Grizzly Smith knew it, but he kept it under his hat. Bill Watts never knew it. We were so far under the right radar that we wouldn't leave the, you know, the apartment except to go to the gym and go to work and come right back home. You didn't see us the rest of the day. Um, 
But the big one was, for some reason, Ted DiBiase just one day asked me if, if I'd like to ride with him. Well, Teddy was on top. Right. He was working with, you know, he was the man. I went, well, my God, of course I would. Um, he had a, it was either a Firebird or a Trans Am, and I figured out pretty quickly why he wanted me to ride with him. He put me right behind the wheel. <laughs> And before we could get out of Baton Rouge, he had that head thrown back snoring. So I was having a great time driving a car that was a lot nicer than one I would probably own myself, certainly in those days. But I, but I was also listening to him snore. So it was a trade out. But while he was awake, before he or either when he would wake up halfway to the arena, he would I would he would start to critique my matches, and I would notice he was standing by the curtain when I was wrestling. And in those days, top guys didn't do that right. for underneath guys. It's unheard of. That's awesome, man. I don't know that I ever would have put two and two together that, that DiBiase would have been a big influence, but I appreciate everybody listening to the show today because you get little nuggets like that. So Watts had a, a bit of a reputation, um, for better or worse, for being a bit of a hard ass, a bit of a stickler. And he also had a reputation for, uh, well, being defended by his old pal and yours and mine as well. Good old JR's and, and Jim would have come to the Watts territory about a year prior to, to you. Did you have any, inter- any interaction with JR in that era? Well, you know, I asked him about that when I saw him at the AEW event back in uh, Chicago. I just said, JR, when did you start with Bill? And I, he was working at the office and I guess he was at TVs, but he was so under the wire and under the radar at that particular time, I, I didn't, I know, I don't think I met him when I worked there. Um, if I did, I sure didn't remember. Um, now let me just say this about Bill Watts. Bill Watts was intimidating. He might've been a bit of a bully with some people. He was pretty straightforward and harsh in his critiques of you, but he gave me a job. He gave me an opportunity and a point in my career where I needed to drive those drives and I needed to wrestle 20 minutes without being able to punch or kick. I needed to learn my craft. And after that, no matter what trip, once I left there, no matter how long the trip was, it was nothing compared to the trips I had just left. So I had already peaked as far as travel issues. It was downhill from there. So it was nothing but a positive experience for me. You, um, you told us a little bit about the Watts territory. What was your favorite town to work in and what was your least favorite and why? Well, Bill Watts, um, it was the best experience of my life and the worst. Um, just because as I look back at it, how, how really difficult and taxing and and actually dangerous it was to to run those roads who, which hadn't been paved and probably to this day through Louisiana it was uh, hard on your body hard on your vehicle uh, but the guys that chose the right town uh, like I said before Tim Horner myself Ted DiBiase we lived in Baton Rouge, and that assured you of a couple of things. Monday was always going to be New Orleans, so you knew you were home. 
It's only 80, 90 miles from Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge was on Tuesday. So that's two days that you knew no matter what happened the rest of the week, you had two stable days, which meant you could get up, go to the gym, get a good workout, come back, actually take a relaxing shower, have a little time in the afternoon if you needed to wash clothes or whatever you needed to do to take care of yourself. You had that because you you had either a no trip or a short trip. Um, Wednesday, you would have to get up early in the morning and drive to Shreveport to do interviews. Now, that was whether you had interviews or not. And in those days, in my position, first match of the night, I didn't have them, but I still had to be there. So I got to watch them and uh, start to kind of see how things were formatted and and just get used to seeing guys in front of a camera, which was a learning experience. But uh, So my favorite town would have been Baton Rouge, um, just for the stability and the fact that you were going to be home. What's your least favorite town? Homa, <laughs> Laranger, and I'll tell you why. You're talking about hardcore wrestling fans. Homa, Louisiana, uh, somebody thought the bright, it was a bright idea to just – the heel locker room opened out right into the crowd and all there was about six feet apart was two single strands of rope, keeping the fans away from the wrestlers. When you came through that door, otherwise, you know, it, it, it really was like just an invisible barrier. It, it, Ted DiBiase had so much heat at that time as soon as the door opened and he took about two steps out that door, the audience was beating him to death right back into the locker room. So consequently, all the heels had to stay till the very end just to make sure Teddy didn't get killed. And uh, you're talking about hardcore wrestling fans and believing every single thing that had been said on television was the God's truth. Those people were hardcore and uh, there's some tough fans out there. I'll put it to you that way. It's funny. I, I laughed when he said Homa because I think Jim uh, Jim Cornette has said for years it's the worst wrestling town he's ever been in. Uh, I may have the town wrong, but I, I thought you were going to say Homa before you actually said Homa. Uh, no, he it, it, it from his perspective, which he was there with the Midnight Express, and if they beat Ted DiBiase up every night, I can imagine they were beating up the Midnight Express every night. So, <clears throat> worst wrestling town to him probably meant most dangerous and he would be correct all right Arn. let's take one last time out today tell everybody how they can save some money i don't know if you saw but last week the fed cut interest rates what does that mean for you if you're a homeowner well it means you're overpaying your single biggest bill interest rates were already great but now with this additional interest rate cut from the fed man there's no telling how much money you can save really it's not even a matter of if you can save some money it's a matter of how much and it's free to find out right now over at savewithconrad.com And I'm talking to you if you're in a 30-year loan. You see, when you first bought your house, you were probably thinking about how much it's going to cost for movers, how much it's going to cost for the new furniture, the new blinds, or to put in a new fence. You're in a different mode when you buy your house. Now, perhaps it's worth another look. What if we could cut years off your loan, meaning a 15-year loan? So maybe you ruled that out once before, and maybe the payment didn't make sense. But since you have more equity and you're no longer worried about moving expenses and interest rates are at an all-time low, it may be more affordable than you think. I routinely help my podcast listeners take their 30-year loan and convert it to just 15 years in the process cutting years worth of unnecessary house payments off of your loan. And think about it. It's your single biggest bill every month and you could cut not one, but years. And every year represents 12 payments. If we cut just five years off your loan, 
That's 60 house payments. Think of how much cash that could be. Find out how easy it could be right now for your family with First Family at SaveWithConrad.com. That's SaveWithConrad.com. We're licensed in over 40 states. We want to make it fast and easy. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And if I can't help you save some cash, I won't waste your time. At SaveWithConrad.com. And I'm a list number 65084, equal housing lender. Do you remember any sort of like wrestling nugget or information or something you carried with you for the rest of your career that Watts maybe gave you maybe a piece of psychology or a rule of thumb or anything like that? Because I think sometimes Bill Watts gets, um, for better or worse, right or wrong. He, he, he would be criticized for not being, um, I don't know. We'll say a little rough around the edges, but did he ever give you any, anything that you were like, Oh shit, that makes sense. I'm going to, I'm going to carry that with me. He never spoke to me. (laughs) That's the nugget that I took with me. I worked for him for five months and he never said a word to me until he told me I was leaving in two weeks. Okay. Well, there you go. Well, that, that, that makes sense. That adds up. Uh, however, 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 the one nugget before I forget it, because it's very important. If you look at the way I've conducted myself, the rest of my career. As I was leaving and Teddy was still there, obviously he could have been there for 10 years if he wanted to be. That's how over he was. He said, now listen, <clears throat> I helped you. You're going to run across if this, if this pans out for you and I believe you're going to be around for a long time. He says, you've about to figure this out. He said, there's going to be a young kid that's going to need your help. You're going to look at him and go, you know what? He's got something. I want you, since I did it for you, if you think that kid truly deserves the help, I want you to pull him aside and help him get to get to the next level. That's all the thank you that I'll ever need. And it just so happens both of his kids came along mm. and I was in a position to help them and that's one of those deja vus that really feels good. Man, what a small world wrestling is. You know, I, I didn't even think about the fact that you worked with them, but absolutely. Uh, talk to me about Matt Bourne. You mentioned, uh, that he was one of your early tag team partners. And, uh, we, we, we sort of reminded everybody that he was the doink character, but way back when Matt Bourne was a wrestler and a half, but he had some uh, interesting lifestyle habits, any fun or, or interesting Matt Bourne stories you can share with us? Well, um, let's just say that Matt was very accomplished by the time I became his partner. I don't think Matt, um, really ever felt like I had enough experience or was ready for the position that I was put in being his partner when we went to, uh, Georgia championship wrestling. Um, I know that there was some underlying animosity and I don't know if it was just Matt had animosity towards the world or if it was just me or what the situation was. Um, Matt and I did get into one of the few scrapes that uh, I got in during my 37 years in the business. Really? Yeah, not well known. And uh, I don't take any pride in it whatsoever. There's nothing worse than the boys getting into a fight because it immediately separates the locker room, cuts it right in half. His friends, your friends, 
neutral folks, and it's just it just makes for a very bad element. Plus, you got to go out there and and trust that guy a lot of times, you know, with your body. And if you don't believe that you can do that, it puts a big damper on what's going on. But uh, Matt liked to party, and I'm not saying anything about that. Hey, I've drank a few beers myself. That's for damn sure uh, over the course of the last 37 years. So, but uh, Matt went out, had a good time one night, and uh, I woke up, and guess it was Paul Ellering, myself, and Matt. The three of us were healing a room. So we had uh, two beds and a Jerked a mattress off that in those days you called it healing a room. Jerked the mattress off the bed and flip a coin and somebody got the box springs and which was the rotten of the three choices and then somebody got the mattress on the floor and somebody got a full bed. It was just luck of the draw. But I woke up and Matt was standing there uh, straddling me with some choice words as I cut the line on and so. All I remember hearing is, I wish I could piss on you. Well, <clears throat> I'm not a tough guy, but I've never been scared. And at that point in time, you imagine a little rage in there with it. Uh, it was on. And uh, Matt and I got in a pretty good scuffle there. I was lucky enough to get the advantage. Matt said, that's enough. I got up, went down the hall. By then, there was enough noise, I guess, that had brought a couple of the boys out in the hall. Uh, Larry Zabisco, God bless him, said, well, Arn, what's going on down there? I said, well, I just got into a nice little scuffle with Matt. Really don't feel comfortable trying to sleep in that room. I'm going to get another room. He said, well, I've got a second bed. I said, if you don't mind, I'll take it. So I took it, and uh, the next day, called the room. Asked Matt if it was cool to go down there, just like it never happened. Um, no animosity going forward, never had another crossword. It's just one of those things I guess that had to happen. Well, let's uh let's lighten the mood a little bit here, Arn. Let's talk about some some fun stuff, some ribs, some locker room stories. You got anything funny you can share with us from back in the day? Oh, let's see. Let's see, let's see. Um one of the things that I felt was, uh, I thought was pretty damn amusing. Uh, if you know the characters or if you just look at it on face value, when we're in Pensacola, there was a guy named Rick McGraw, God bless him who has since passed, but, uh, came to work down there for, he was there probably four months and, uh, he had the bright idea that, uh, he wasn't going to get a hotel or an apartment and, uh, so upon reflection of that, I went, well, where's the guy going to stay? Turned out he would go work the town, drive back to Pensacola, go to the 2001 or one of the uh, watering holes that uh, the boys uh, frequented in those days. And then he would immediately go to the beach, get out his lounge chair, set his cooler beside him, throw a towel out and sleep whatever was left of the night until the sun came up, which woke him up. He would walk about 50 feet to the bathhouse, take a shower, put on a coat of oil, and good for the day. <laughs> yeah. One one thing missing, what What's about that? home? You don't have a home. But, you know, I asked him about that. He said, hey, what's that sun's up? It's all gravy. So... There you go. 
Yeah. How about washing the gear? I mean, that had to be a stinky motherfucker. Not too long after that, huh? You would be surprised at the guys that would get to the arena, wash out their tights in the sink, wring them out in the towel, put them on good to go. I would suggest without the, without a roof over your head, washing your tights would be the last thing (laughs) on your schedule. (laughs) Yeah, probably. Probably. So that's just, it's just one of those weird things that really happened. And it's hard to believe that, that, it, you know, the guys actually did that, but my God, it's just, it's, it's incredible. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, Watts. You mentioned earlier, you know, about how you were, um, paid and what you were paid and sort of what that money looked like in that territory. But what we didn't break down, was that a flat fee or were you paid based on the houses? You were paid based on the houses and if they were really good, you know, but again, all I can tell you is, is listening to Teddy talk at the very top. If the house jumped, your pay jumped substantially. If you were in the first match, it was anywhere from, uh, hundred dollars to $300. And it didn't matter how much the house jumped. And I'll give you an example. Um, you know, just to tell you how difficult part of working for Bill Watts was, but the upside to it as well. Now, remember, this was 1982. Um, about every three weeks, it was scheduled that on Thursday night, you would on Wednesday you would go do TV. Wednesday night you would. Uh, uh, Shreveport, Louisiana was television. Then you would go back to Baton Rouge. Thursday would be somewhere over in Mississippi, like Jackson, Mississippi, or or one of those places. Then on Friday, you would drive 400 miles from Baton Rouge, one way, uh, up to Little Rock. After Little Rock, you would go on to Tulsa or Oklahoma City, whichever one was running Sunday afternoon, and you had a double shot. Tulsa, Oak City, or Oak City, Tulsa. I don't remember which one it was. Now, business was always good there, so that was a $300 payoff per day. So 600 bucks your week was made. It's a lot of money for an underneath guy in those days. The downside is you then had a 700-mile drive Oof. back to Baton Rouge. So what that meant was in real time, and if you want to picture this and put your body into the situation – you would have a match at uh, 7 o'clock. Uh, first of all, you would have a match in the afternoon. I think it was 2 o'clock it would start. Uh, if you were first match, you would have your match. You'd grab a quick shower, throw on a pair of sweats, drive the 100 miles across to the other town, be there in time to get you a couple of cups of coffee. You would have the first match there. So it would still be daylight in the summertime or the spring when you would finish that second match and you would leave by the time you got to Baton Rouge to your home, it would be daylight again. That's, uh, yeah, that's that's what I said. Yeah. Daylight again. So that's earning you 600 bucks. Oh yeah. But, uh, again, in those days to, to wrestle twice, which I would have done for free. I wouldn't have told anybody that, but I would have, and to get paid 600 bucks, good money but buddy about wednesday when you woke up your body told you hey i've been through something here and uh your body would have been right you know you're talking about working the territory with watts here and 
uh, you know, bouncing from town to town. Did you, were there agents in that territory? Did that even exist back then? There was one Grizzly Smith, God bless him. Who was, uh, Jake, the snake's father. He was the only agent while I was there. And he basically would just come in, tell you when you were on, um, if there was any issues other than, cause like I said, I was in the first match every single night. My, my job was pretty clearly cut and my job description was pretty, pretty clearly pointed out to me. So I didn't have to deal with anything else during the course of, uh, of the day. Uh, but he handled everything. He was the only agent that we had. So he would, he would sort of give you a time like, Hey, you guys got seven minutes and so-and-so's going over. Uh, same thing. It was the same thing every night, 20 minutes through. Oh, every through. time. Okay. And, and that was, it was pretty standard for that. You know, the, the Bill Watts audience, the mid South audience knew first match was going to be two young guys that were, uh, inexperienced or they were experienced one or the other, but you were going to get a 20 minute wrestling match and they were pretty much geared to that. And that's what it was. I would say about 95% of the time, you know, that's cool to know that he always started that way with like spot shows. Did, did you ever learn or were you not there long enough or involved enough to figure out how Watts sort of formatted TV so foreign to me? Um, as far as the logistics, I would just sit there with my, you know, jaw on the ground like everybody else, watching the stories play out and watching the players play out. And, and, and things were different in those days. You know, you, you didn't have your top guys butting heads. JYD and uh, Ted DiBiase would never be butting heads on television unless it was for a major angle to escalate their program. Uh, just to be doing it, to be doing it, you never gave that away. You kept your top guys on either side of the ball away from each other. People had to buy a ticket and come to a live event to see it. And you certainly would never be beating your top heels on television. It just made no sense. And to this day, I'm not sure it makes any sense. So we touched on it earlier. I got to hear the story. How in the world does Arn Anderson wind up under a hood and calling himself super Olympia? Okay, so we have about that famous six months again. Um, six months for Bill, five or six months, six months in Atlanta. Had an episode where uh, Matt got into got into a little bit of trouble and got fired. We're talking about Matt okay. Bourne, who would go on to be Doink for some of our younger listeners who may not put two and two together. That's correct. Um, so he got fired. Now this this one is probably going to jar you out of your chair if you really think about it for a minute. So Ole, in those days, you know, as smart as he was and in control of of his business, totally. For some reason, he only saw me in one light. So when Matt got canned, other than keeping Paul and I and just giving me another partner, because they were grooming us for the national tag titles i believe they were called in those days which were their like their world tag tag titles he was grooming us for that situation when matt got fired Oli just kind of went uh hey i I don't know what i'm gonna do with you um you know we'll try to figure something out but i may need to get you booked out somewhere well 
Ole now needing a team other than finding me a partner. He went up to Minneapolis, went to a gym up there, the gym, started looking around. Guess who he found? The Road Warriors. Bingo. Unbelievable. Now, now, as you're getting yourself up off the floor, <laughs> let me let me just put this food for thought in there. <clears throat> what would have happened if Matt Bourne hadn't have got fired? Oh, wow. Yeah. And we'd have went on. We would have got the world tag or their version of the world tag titles, which are national tag titles. Had, I would think, would be a long run as champions. There might not have been a Road Warriors. That's pretty crazy to think about. Um, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of ifs. I, I, I want to say, you know, Mike and Joe would have made it in some capacity down the road or, you know, maybe I'm overthinking that, but it's just one of those things where you go, hmm, wow. It's pretty unbelievable so anyway, how it all sort of ties ahead. together. I mean, it's, you know, if one little thing along the way changes, everything looks different. Yeah. Well, it could have hypothetically, you know, do I think, you know, I think Joe and, and Mike were meant and Paul Ellering, certainly that package was so good and it was, uh, you know, they were so different at the time. I think they would have came together anyway, but, but who knows, you know, who knows? But anyway, the point is, after too much longer, Oli looks at me and he goes, I, I've ran out of stuff for you to do. You want me to get you booked out? And I went, you know what? I got enough good TV. And we did. You know, we had good TV under our belts uh, at that particular point in time. I said, I can probably give Bob Armstrong a call. So I called him myself and he said, you kidding me? He said, I've uh, been, you know, been watching you on TV up there. You've done a really good job. Well, yes, we can use you. You can start in Birmingham on Monday. I got an idea for you. So at that point in time, I get down there and Jerry Stubbs, who was Mr. Olympia, if you recall him. Right. Fantastic body. Guy looked like a million dollars. And underneath, underneath that hood, his gear always looked good, you know, he used the, the bright, shiny colors. Guy was tan from living in Pensacola, Florida, obviously laying out by his pool all the day. Trained constantly, looked like a million dollars. He said he needs somebody to work with, so I'm going to bring you in as Super Olympia, which as a babyface, which I didn't, number one, didn't have any experience being, and number two, I can't see worth the shit because I wear glasses. <laughs> So putting on the mask alleviated, you know, being able to see on top of that. And I'm a little claustrophobic. There's three negatives. Um, but I said, hey, I'll do the best I can. And they brought me in as his, like, pseudo partner. And that lasted a little bit of time. And then they turned me on him, pulled off the mask, realized, oh, well, that's Arn Anderson. Son of a gun, because I was fresh off of that television, and that was a, a big break that I got down in Pensacola. We're going to post a picture on Twitter. You got to see this at the Arn Show of Arn under a hood. Uh, it's a, a rare little promo photo uh, taken on the beach in a red and blue mask. It's just hard to believe, man. I didn't know when we first started uh, doing research for this show that you were ever under a hood at all. So that was news to me. Well, what was, what was nuts and news to me is that I would be out on Pensacola Beach with a wrestling mask on, posing. 
Yeah, that's got to be pretty weird, huh? I mean, you, you, who, who does that? Yeah. Nobody does that. But the thing about it was, again, now, <clears throat> as soon as I go to work down there, there's there's another name that comes into place. Tim Horner comes in almost exactly at the same time, who I had already established a friendship, living with him for five months. And Tim Horner's really, to this day, a good friend of mine. Then I made good friends with the Armstrongs and all that stuff. So they're going, hey, listen, here's the deal. As a baby face, you know, you sell your pictures. You get all the money. So they were out on the beach taking pictures, you know, that they were selling little Polaroids and run them off and, you know, whatever the deal was. So I thought that was what was done. Looking back on it, if I'm a person that's riding by the, <laughs> riding by the beach and I look down and see that, I, I'd call the cops. Sure. Absolutely. So it was a weird deal having a mask on, but you know what? It, it led to somewhere else. And uh, in those days, listen, you could have dressed me up like Winnie the Pooh. I wouldn't have cared. I just wanted to be in the business and and make my way to the point that I would be looked at as, hey, that guy should be in the business. I got to ask, though, you know, when you're fresh off TV, you know, the, the Georgia TV was huge at the time, the biggest in the country. And you can sort of, uh, call around and sort of book your own spot. It feels like a young guy would have picked Pensacola on purpose because dude, you're just hanging out at the beach all day until it's time to go wrestle that night. Right. The most awesome job I've ever had. And to this day, it was the most fun I ever had. Now, Bill Watts was 2,500 miles a week. Let's just say average driving Pensacola was probably about, I'm going to say about 800. Wow. There's the difference. Monday, up and back to uh, Birmingham, 275 miles each way. Tuesday, Mobile, 50 miles over, 50 miles back. Wednesday, off. Now, that in those days, territories didn't have an off day. Right. We had an off day. Unbelievable. Thursday, 150 or 60 miles up to... Uh, let's see. Montgomery up to Montgomery back 160. Then on Friday was a spot show that was on the way to Dothan, which was only 160 miles too. going into Dothan, spend the night, do Dothan television that, that afternoon at 12 o'clock. And then you would do a house show in Dothan that night, drive back to Pensacola on Sunday and wrestle in Pensacola heaven yeah not too bad of a trip and uh as you said a third of the miles and if coming off tv you're probably making more money as well right well hey you know not at first actually i was you know i took a pay cut to go down there but again they were between business being good and just so-so and if you got there at the wrong time business was so-so you got paid off the house it didn't matter what their plans were for you if you weren't there yet, you got paid, you know, coming in underneath money. And then as they moved you up the card, your salary moved up the card as well. And uh, I don't know if I could have got booked anywhere else or not. Who knows? That speculation. Uh, I knew that I wanted to go back down there because I fell in love with the place the first time that I went just for the three weeks. I got to see enough of the beach that... I went, God, people actually get to live here? That's unheard of. 
um, boy, that was like a dream of mine. And to this day, it's a dream of mine moving back down there. But anyway, it, uh, it really was, it was, uh, the guys that knew about Pensacola all tried to get booked there and the guys that didn't know about it and people would tell them about it. I think they half-assed believed it and half-assed didn't. It was paradise. Talk to me about the, uh, the Oli thing. I know we're sort of jumping around a little bit, but the explanation was you were Oli's nephew. Is that right? Like that's the explanation. Which Tom? Anytime either. When when he first named you. Take three, take three conversations in the same hour. And I went from Oli's cousin to nephew to brother. (laughs) And they could all be in the same conversation. And the announcers did the same thing. It was the damnedest thing ever. But you know what? People didn't, no one really questioned me that much. They would go, how's your brother doing? Or going by what they heard last, how's your cousin doing? It wasn't like, hey, are you guys brothers or cousins or what are you? Is he your nephew? What is the deal? You would run into wrestling fans and they would just say, hey, how's your brother doing? And that was, that's the the craziness of being a wrestling fan. They didn't look at those details as being important. I looked enough like him that I could have been his relative of some sort. And they just go with it. Of course, that's the... uh the run with Georgia championship wrestling, but after Pensacola, is that when you wind up finding your way with Jim Crockett promotions? How does that come to be? Yeah, I tell you what, I did not want to leave. I didn't want to leave. I was, I met my wife there and we've been together God, 34 years. Um, that's a record in wrestling. Is it not? Gotta be. I think gotta so. be. Either, you know, that being, you know, Mike Rotundo and I, I think might have the record. He's been married quite a while to his wife uh, as well. Uh, But to be employed for 37 straight years and be with my wife for 34 years, um, between the two of them, without ever having a break, uh, as far as employment goes, I think you've combined them both. That's got to be a record. Yeah. One of the first times you and I hung out, you were explaining how different you were. You said same job, same wife, same house. Nobody's done that. And I just thought that was uh, a cool little hallmark for, for Aaron Anderson's life. There's been a lot of constants and, and, and wrestling and Aaron and Charlotte, North Carolina have sort of been it. Yeah. You know, I lived for 12 years, uh, one street over for Bobby Eaton. Uh, in the old neighborhood when I first got here, 86, we bought a little house, little three bedroom, two, you know, two bath house, small. Uh, it was five years old when I bought it. They hadn't even used the, uh, the fireplace. So it was immaculate. We lived there 12 years. And in 1997, I built the house that I'm in now. And we've been here ever since. And, you know, Aaron's, Aaron's the rock of the family. I tell you, she's, she's incredible. Um, this podcast would not be possible literally was it for her being here (laughs) and helping technically set it up because the second it said your internet is not operational that would have shut me down right there (laughs) yeah it was uh it was fun getting the uh the show on the air today and um i'm looking forward to uh to going down this trail with you every week but I think where most of our listeners first become familiar with you is not in Pensacola, not in Bill Watts territory, not on Georgia TV, 
but Jim Crockett Promotions. So tell us how we make our way from Pensacola to, to JCP. Okay. And uh, just know, I want everybody to understand this since we are at this crossroads. There is nothing I would not go through, obviously, as I'm staring at all these panels blinking and all this stuff to do this because of the interest that I've had from wrestling fans at, at different events I've been to the last six months. They've all said, when's your podcast starting? So they're excited. I want to thank you. Thank them. And just let you know, I'll go to the end of the earth to get this thing on the air every week. Okay. So moving on, because I am not a computer geek. <laughs> yeah, Tony was telling me that uh, he called when he left your house and he said, buddy, I don't think Orange used a mouse before. I, I think he thought a mouse was like a rodent. I don't think he's all the way in the loop on that. He was looking for a trackpad and had to tell him that they don't have that on desktop. So that's where we are, boys and girls. But the, the, thankfully, uh, Mrs. Mrs. Anderson is uh, is making this thing happen for us. And we're very appreciative. She's our six-man tag team partner. Yes, we are. Okay, so moving ahead, enter Ric Flair. So in those days, Ric Flair was the champion. He traveled around the world, and every time he came into your territory, which was the little company that you worked for, no matter where it was, business jumped. I mean, people coming to see Ric Flair, I would suggest just remembering – I would say the house would jump a fourth. Wow. Which is quite a bit. Yeah. If you think about it, no matter who his opponent was, they would have paid to watch Ric Flair wrestle that mouse we're talking about chasing around a while ago. Didn't matter. He was the draw. And in those days, it was no matter who the champion was, whether it was Harley Race or Dusty Rhodes or Ric Flair, whoever it was, when they would come into the territory, you would have one of the guys go pick them up and you would haul the champion no matter where he wanted to go for the week. Bob asked me if I would mind doing that. I would be honored to do that. And so I picked him up at the airport and we proceeded to spend a week together. Um, and it was just hauling him to the gym, bringing him to the arena bringing him back from the arena to his hotel and starting the whole thing over the next day because we would come back to Pensacola every night and there were short trips. So we got through one of those, probably another six months passed. He came back again, asked for me to haul him. I was honored to haul him. And on that week, we got to know each other a little more because he accepted the fact that I was still there and I had improved Apparently, he would, he had taken the opportunity to go to the curtain and watch some of my matches, and he said, you know, <clears throat> Jim Crockett is in the process of being competitive with uh, Vince McMahon, who, as you know, is going around stealing talent from everywhere, and Jim Crockett is wanting to beef up his – now, I'm paraphrasing all this, but he's wanting to beef up his – territory with with some of the top talent around the company and i think you would around the country excuse me he said uh i think you would be a nice fit you know Ole and gene have that history minnesota wrecking crew through the carolinas he would he said you would be a perfect fit and i said rick i'm i'm honored but i don't want to leave 
and I don't think I have to leave. Um, certainly there been any, hasn't been any conversation about having to leave. I think I'm still good here. Uh, but just out of curiosity, what do you think I could make? And he threw a figure out that was three times what I was making. That'll change your thought process a little bit. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> you know, in those days. And as it turned out, you know, we had a little more conversation and some of that stuff was going on. And uh, just so happened in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, um, they had just, that company, Continental, had started to expand and move a little north of Birmingham. They had a show in Tuscaloosa. Well, Rick was riding with me, top rope breaks on me as I'm hitting the ropes. I do a flip, land on my head, mm. wake up in the hospital. Well, as it turns out, the world champion had gathered up my bag, got the keys to my car, and drove down to the hospital and was waiting out in the waiting room to see how I was. Now, can you imagine the riot that was going on out in the waiting room? Right. With Rick Flair, Rick Flair sitting there. Um, so I woke up. He said, hey, I got all your stuff. I brought it to you. Put put my bag, because all I had with me was just my bag. Um, and as it turns out, my grandmother, uh, who was scheduled to have cancer surgery, was going to be the next day. So I'd already arranged to get a couple days off to go be with her for her surgery. He had brought in my bag and uh, brought my keys, and he said, here, you know, I got your car. It's all sitting out outside for you, and I, this is where I parked it, and da-da-da-da-da-da. If you're okay now, I'm going to go ahead, and uh, he went to his hotel. So the next day, um, get up, check myself out of the hospital, which was an issue. They didn't want me to check out, obviously. Head back to Rome. Um Went through the surgery with my my grandmother, used the time that was allotted to me, and then I had to go back to Pensacola. But the next time Rick came down <clears throat> was not that long. I want to say maybe six weeks. He just came in for one show, which I think was Dothan, just just one one show for some reason. And he said, "You think about what I said to you," and I went, "You know." We had already had a bond after he did that for me that I was, if he asked again, I was going to go. I said, yeah, I'll go. When? And uh, you, you're serious? And he went and got on the phone right then, I guess, with Dusty and said uh, he could start in whatever it was, two weeks. So that's how I ended up uh, working a notice, leaving and uh, going to Jim Crockett Promotions. And that's when the fire was lit. Rick uh, developed a bit of a reputation for becoming almost like a, uh, a sort of low key recruiter for Jim Crockett promotions in that era. Do you think when, when he recruited you away from the territory, there was any quote unquote heat on Rick for pulling you out? I don't think so because I was 14 months in. Right. And to be honest with you, a heel being in a territory, that's why it worked. Now we had weekly shows, which nobody seems to really remember or understand. You went to the same town. Every Saturday was Dothan. Every Monday was Birmingham. Every Thursday was Montgomery. Every Tuesday was Mobile. No skipping. That was weekly towns. 
So to have been there 14 months for me, that's got to be a third record, I would think, maybe. You know what I mean? Right. Because I wasn't a ba- I wasn't a baby face. I, I was a baby face there for like maybe six weeks and then healed for the rest of the time. So 12 and a half months is a long time to be a heel in a small territory like that. So um, I think Bob Armstrong saw that it was time to go and uh, he was okay with it. But do I think he would have kicked me out in the next two or three months? Probably not. But anyway, the timing was right. And uh, again, when I went in, it was right in the middle of, like you said, Rick was like a talent recruiter. recruiter. Yeah. He recruited some pretty damn good names uh, in the next month to six weeks because Buddy Landell and I started on the same TV. Wow. Buddy Landell was a tremendous talent and he had a ready-made gimmick, you know, the Ric Flair and imitation in the Carolinas made him public enemy. Number one, the rock and roll express came in. They were already there when I got there by just a couple of weeks. They were already into a program with the Russians. Midnight express came in and you added the Garvins, both of them. I, you know, it was like, Tim Horner came in. Brad Armstrong came in. You started seeing all these guys that would not necessarily every one of them were top, top guys, but man, you could see the card was filling out with, with some tremendous talents. And, uh, you know, right off the bat, walking in the door, the very first television, they had me kick the shit out of Manny Fernandez. I'm sure he didn't like that, but (laughs) matter of fact, he's probably still hot about it. But, hey, you know, we worked great together. It was physical, solid stuff, and uh, and I enjoyed working with Manny. Let's talk a little bit about wrestling politics. Wrestling has its own sort of unique set of best practices for its performers, and if you don't always adhere to those, you find yourself on the outs politically. Uh, you know, we, as fans have heard about, you know, there's sort of a, a quote unquote workers handshake and that you're supposed to say hello to everyone and shake their hand and introduce yourself. Even if you just saw them yesterday, stuff like that. How do you learn to navigate all that stuff as a young guy coming up in the business back then? Well, it's, it's something that you, it's trial by fire. <clears throat> you see that happening, uh, on the independent shows that you're working and you know i just asked ted you know before i went to that being ted allen um before i went down to work for bob or work for watch you know does this this apply to everywhere he said absolutely and i figured out over the course of time nobody tells you this they don't just explain it to you you have to kind of figure it out and it's part of the learning process when you come in the locker room you go around and you do, you shake everybody's hand. You say hello to everybody, introduce yourself if it's someone you've never met. Cause we're a traveling band of gypsies. And that's, a, that's a fact. We're a bunch of guys. And now a bunch of guys and girls in rental cars or our own personal car. And we're traveling state to state, sometimes three to 400 miles apart in the evening after a show. And, uh, all we really got out there on this road is each other. And if you don't believe it, 
let a rent a car break down with four wrestlers on the side of the road and have those guys get out and try to flag somebody down for some help and see what you get. You'll get run over. That's what you'll get. Um, so all we really have is each other to look after each other. The handshake represents, listen, <clears throat> we're going to go out here and we're going to have a little bit of a tussle and it should be solid and it should be convincing and it should be something that the audience member can feel that there's a fight going on, but I'm going to return you to your family the way I found you. And then that's in one piece, not paralyzed, not crippled, not with a head full of stitches. And each and every day when I come in that locker room and shake your hand, I'm reaffirming to you that I'm going to do that exact same thing. This is a new day. It's the same thought process coming from me. You're safe with me. That's what the handshake meant to me. It may mean something to other people. It may be a pain in the ass to some other people. may not represent anything to some of the guys. That's what it represented to me. It's a mutual respect for each other. It's a mutual caring for each other because we're all we got. And uh, you cripple a guy, you got that on your conscience for the rest of your life, or you should. So... That's part of the inner workings of the things we do, and that doing it day after day may be a pain in the ass to some people. It's pretty reassuring to me that, hey, this guy's on an even keel. He's got his head in the right place. We're good. How much of that still exists today? Um, the veterans that want to be veterans, that want to learn the business, that are here for the long haul, and they're not in a quick cash grab, they think, and want to get out. It still exists. There's a lot of pros out there that uh, that are still in the industry that, that want to treat it professionally and, and respect the business. Not like it was. It was a necessity back in the day. The, the two things that you did not want to be caught, no matter what, in the middle of is being a thief or being reckless. You want to get, you want to get tossed out of the business and blackballed? That's two things that got you out right away. And and those things don't really exist anymore. If a guy drops a guy on his head carelessly these days, somebody wants to know what happened. <clears throat> and if the answer is not adequate, you know, right away you start having some rumblings about, I don't know if we can trust this guy or not. A thief wouldn't last 30 seconds anymore. And there wasn't that many cases of it back then. But there was no internet. There was none of none of that going around. But if a guy got caught stealing, it made the rounds pretty quickly. Most of our listeners to the show know that you were uh, famous or infamous or notorious or whatever descriptor you want to use for your promos. When and how did you start to really work on that and hone that on these long car rides to and from? Is that the idea? Or was there a different approach back then? Well, like I said, it, we before I got in the business, the guys I broke in with, all my buddies, I was cutting promos on them when I was 17 years old, 18 years old. Um, and I, you know, Dick Slater, Bob Orton Jr., when, when they were with Gary Hart, that was the strongest influence on me that I can remember of everybody, every wrestler I ever saw, you know, those two guys together, it's like something just clicked on, and I went, God, these guys are so good, and they gel so well together. Um, 
and their promos. You know, they were they were different, but they complemented each other. Gary Hart was the manager that complemented his two 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 guys. He didn't overshadow them, and that was the first first guys that really affected me that way and uh <clears throat> they were like my idols and uh it's funny randy orton and i have had you know some conversations about how much i idolize his dad and you know getting to work with randy who's a natural and has had a tremendous career uh, it's just it's like dibiase and his boys you know and and my relationship with teddy and then my relationship with his kids it's just it's a it's a big universe but it's a small world Talk to me a little bit about, uh, the way you changed your look, you know, when you were uh, a tag team before, and then even as a singles, when you were the, uh, uh, you, national tag team champion. And when you were with Stubbs, you were a fedora, but then at some point in Jim Crockett, somebody comes along and says, mm, maybe, maybe no hat. How does that go down? Well, it was, uh, you know, when I sent my, uh, when I sent my tape, they had me do a video to send ahead of arriving there. Dusty wanted me to do a, you know, he got a hold of Rick Stewart, who was on the production end down with Bob Armstrong's company and, and the Fullers. Um, he said, have him send me about a three-minute interview and, you know, you know, just show me who he is. So I had on a Yankee hat right, on, on the beach. I think that video is still floating around available somewhere. Yeah. They showed a clip of it on uh, nitro. We'll have a, a picture of that up on uh, our Twitter at the Arn show. Uh, so you can take a look at this promo that is really probably one of the first things dusty saw of yours. The, probably the first. And, uh, the, I guess the heat of it was, was I'm a Braves fan. I'm a Georgia boy. I'm a lifetime Braves fan wearing a Yankee hat was a betrayal within itself. But at that particular time, I liked Goose Gossage, too, and I liked the Yankees, you know, Fairweather fan. They were kicking ass, and, you know, when they had their run, and they were fun to watch. And uh, so that's the reason for that hat. And then I get to there, and Matt Bourne had actually worn the fedora out in uh, Louisiana. So when we went to... Georgia as partners, he dyed his hair blonde. And I said, Hey, you're not going to wear that goofy ass hat anymore. And he said, no, no. I said, you mind if I steal that? He said, well, sure. So he's actually the first one to wear it. Then I put it on and nobody to this day can figure out what I was doing with that on my head, (laughs) which was that that was the reason to wear it. Oh my gosh. Conversation piece. But you know, as time went on, you, you reestablish your, you know, Ole hated it. He's, well, you got that goofy ass hat on for it. It's not got nothing to do with the Andersons. So I said, well, Ole, this ain't the Andersons of the 1600s either. You know, you think I'm benefiting from being your partner. You might look at it like uh, you're benefiting from being mine. Who knows? You know, it's open to conjecture. What the hell? Um. So anyway, that's where it came from. It didn't last too long, but I still hear, you know, Every now and then, hey, what, what about that goofy hat you used to wear? So it served <laughs> its purpose. Well, if you want to see a picture of Arn in this hat, you can check it out on Twitter at the Arn Show. And uh, I think you're going to be pleased with that picture because uh, between him and a mask and then and then him in this fedora, 
quite the look <laughs> that Arn was uh, was playing with early in his career. As long as I didn't wear the mask with the hat. Yeah, that would have been that. That might be a too much. You know, Super Calo in WCW wore uh, sunglasses and a hat and the mask. I think we could have. Maybe we need an Arn mask one day at one of our live shows where you try all three. And speaking of live shows, I can't believe this is coming together this way. But ladies and gentlemen, we've got our first live show, and uh, on our debut episode, we're announcing it. How about that? And how appropriate is it that it's happening on Thanksgiving weekend, historically Starcade weekend. Of course, these days, people are talking about WrestleCade. Arn's going to be at WrestleCade that weekend. You don't want to miss it. It's Thanksgiving weekend right there in Winston-Salem at the Benton Convention Center. But after the matches that night, you can scoot over and see the very first live Arn show. Uh, it'll be your first chance to ask Arn questions, get a real peek behind the curtain, hear some stories that we can't tell here on the podcast that we just don't want for public consumption. But tickets are on sale right now. If you'd like to pick it up, just follow us on Twitter at The Arn Show, and uh, you'll be able to see where to get tickets. Or just check out arnshowlive.com. Tickets are just 30 something bucks. It is the best way you can spend that Saturday night. There won't be any good college football games worth watching, so why not? Come to WrestleCave, hang out with us, and uh, hear some stories that you can't tell here on the podcast. It's arnshowlive.com, and it's going down Thanksgiving weekend as a big part of wrestlecade and you've been to wrestlecade before man they put on quite the convention there don't they yeah man it's awesome i'm telling you it's uh shoulder to shoulder you can barely move and uh the smiles on the fans faces getting to see all those guys and, and ladies it's, it's awesome it's, it, it's for me a person who likes to people watch i love it it's probably one of the biggest conventions of the year too they've got so many talent well over 100 superstars so make a weekend out of it come on down after you get full of your turkey and your stuffing, uh, come do some real Black Friday shopping at WrestleCade and stick around on Saturday because Saturday night after the matches is where you can catch Arn and myself and pick his brain, man. The enforcer is uh, giving you a peek behind the curtain for the first time. ArnShowLive.com. And I want to circle back just a minute to that promo that you did on the beach in Pensacola for Dusty because it's got such a great history to it. You know, obviously Flair had been recruiting you, but then Dusty asked for the tape and you know, that tape really became what lit the match for your incredible run and Jim Crockett promotions. And then of course the WWF and then WCW and WWE. And I mean, you may have still gotten there eventually, but it's just fun to sort of trace it back. Like we were talking about a little earlier with the road warriors. So what I want to do right now is play the audio from that promo, which a lot of fans still hold in high regard today. It made air on nitro, believe it or not, August 31st, 1998. And shout out to uh, the Mid-Atlantic Gateway. If you're a fan of these territory days and Jim Crockett promotions and early Arn Anderson, I encourage you to uh, go to midatlanticgateway.com today. Uh, Dick Bourne and his tag team partner, David Chapel there have archived all kinds of great stuff about Arn Anderson and the Four Horsemen and specifically Jim Crockett promotions and the Mid-Atlantic Territory. It's midatlanticgateway.com or just check the uh, description of this episode you'll see tons of old classic content, uh, from Arn and, and the good old days. But anyway, without further ado, uh, let's share that promo. I've been getting word that there's a lot of talent flooding into the mid Atlantic area. A lot of people are wondering why, why is all this talent wanting to come in the mid Atlantic area? 
Well, I'll tell you why. Because for seven long years, everybody was horrified to come in the Mid-Atlantic area because of two reasons, namely Gene and Ole Anderson. They run roughshod over everybody, hurt them, and sent them packing, Daddy. Some of them's working at Hank's Hot Dog Stand. Some's working at 7-Eleven, but none of them are wrestling. Well, just because you think that's all over, brother, that was the calm before the storm because the best, the youngest, the best looking Anderson is on his way. You understand what I'm saying? Now you got several timid fellas running around there blowing their own horn. You got Dusty Rose, the American dream, apple pie, mom, hot dogs. Well, brother, your mama must have fed you a lot of apple pie and hot dogs. You got Ricky Steamboat. <laughs> Looks like you ought to be on a wine punch commercial. You got some Magnum TA. What's he gonna pull up in a red? sports car all smiles with pretty teeth but this is not a toothpaste commercial this is professional wrestling and what I do very best better than anything is wrestle wrestling machine so just remember one thing boys I'm heading your way mid-atlantic sports has piled enough money and they're gonna throw it all back together so just one thing, just one brief thing for you to do, boys. Delta has five non-stops daily, 250 pounds of culture bulks heading your way. You guess which plane I'm going to be in. You guess when I'm going to show up, but I'm coming real soon. See you, boys. <laughs> Boy, does that bring back some memories. Wow. So that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of how Arn got to Crockett. Stay tuned next week. And you can actually jump on Twitter and ask a question because we're going to go to the other bookend of Crockett leaving Jim Crockett promotions. Famously things are changing in 1988 and Arn and Tully decide to move North. We'll talk about what happened, why it happened, what else could have happened. What didn't happen because there's lots of rumor and innuendo and we're going to set the record straight next week. And if you've got a question, for Arn, just follow us on Twitter. Fire your question off. You'll see the graphic there at the Arn Show, and tell a friend that Arn Anderson is uh, doing something that's way out of his comfort zone, and every wrestling fan needs to hear it. It's the Arn Show, exclusively on Westwood One every Tuesday morning at six a.m. We'll see you next week right here on Arn. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.